Alright, good morning. So I don't know about you, but I had a hard time falling asleep last night with all the things that are happening uh, in our nation. Uh, so much unrest and so much violence, so much hatred and, and all these things that were keeping me up last night. And, and I know for many of us, uh, you feel the same way too. And uh, it's been such a heartbreaking weekend for our nation, for our community, for people even just here sitting at our church. Obviously, I'm talking about what has happened over the weekend at Charlottesville, Virginia. As there were white supremacists, neo-Nazis, nationalists, and, and counter-protesters uh, colliding with one another, which resulted in, from the last I heard, three deaths, several critically injured, and uh, many injuries. And, and as I was thinking about what's happening in our, in our country, in our society, I think of all the violence and hatred and racism, and the thing that comes back to me over and over and over again is that in the midst of all that ugliness, that Christ is still beautiful. And I can't help but to keep thinking about the beauty of Jesus, and that at the end of the day, that God is good, whether we believe it or not, whether we see it or not. In the midst of so much tragedy and, again, so much hatred and violence and racism and bigotry, that on the other side of that, that God is still faithful and just and good and loving and calls us to be the same. Now this, as Sarah and as Chelsea said, this does not mean that uh, it's wrong to be angry or sad or upset or to cry uh, or to be hurt. As a matter of fact, I would even argue that a Christian response would include all of that. We call that lament. That it's okay to respond in this righteous way of being angry and hurt, especially for ourselves and on behalf of of others, even people that we don't know. But I would also contend that lament and anger and sadness and hurt is not the end of the story. The arc of hope continues even through that and ends at the cross. And we must have hope. That at the end of the day, that the love of Jesus will win through and in us, especially. So today we, we reflect on Philemon. We, we will continue this, this series called Summer Shorts. Uh, and a lot of the pastors across the country, uh, I would assume, had a sermon ready to go by Thursday, Friday night. And then suddenly things changed over the weekend. And my friends and colleagues and myself included, we can't just go on not addressing what God's heart is breaking over so much. And so we land in Philemon, something that we've already planned to do anyways. And yet there's this idea of this, like this, this prophetic message where if you see in your notes, the title of this message is called The Art of Reconciliation, which was printed last Wednesday. And so there is something very prophetic that's been happening that God is doing in and through 
our church. And yet, though I had a sermon ready to go, I had to switch it up. I scrambled late last night. Uh, I texted our worship director, Chelsea, and I said, you know what? Things have got to be different. We got, we got to do something different here. And obviously, she was all about it. She said, yes, I'm so thankful for her and the band uh, that just kind of switched things up last second in order for us to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and what the Spirit is doing in and among our church due to recent events. And so with that said, uh, much of what I might say, uh, it, it comes raw and unedited. I was up last night, woke up this morning, so uh, just a heads up on that. Uh, so I'm sorry, slash not sorry. So before we get to Philemon, let's, let's just pray real quick. God, thank you so much for what you are doing in this community. I'm so proud and grateful to be part of a community that will hurt alongside with you. God, we pray for Charlottesville, Virginia, and the town that is just um, in chaos, that, is, that have experienced so much trauma and so much violence and so much anger and, and hatred. God, would you just intervene in what's happening there? And God, may we have the courage to hope that your love will overcome all the things that are happening. And God, may we though uh, not in that exact location, not be silent. God, may we feel, may we hurt alongside, may we cry alongside, may we be angry alongside as well. Knowing that we're all connected through you. And so God, teach us how to be that. In your name we pray, amen. What I love about Philemon is that it's short. Uh, It's one chapter But as we look at the book of Philemon, the letter to Philemon, though it's only one chapter, what we'll notice is that it's packed with heavy topics and issues. It carries a big punch for such a short book. And many scholars would say it's an explosive book. As a matter of fact, one of the most explosive books or letters that Paul has ever written to anybody and to any church. And for us to understand the whole book of this letter of Philemon, it's important for us to understand the context of what's happening and the people that are included. I don't know if you've ever read Philemon, but there's three characters that are important to this story. First, we have the author, Paul, who wrote majority of the, of the letters and majority of the books, actually, in the New Testament. We have Paul, who is writing all these letters, especially Philemon, while he's in prison in Rome, right around 60 A.D., So Paul's in prison writing this letter, and he's writing this letter to this man named Philemon, uh, who lives in Colossae, which we get the letter of Colossians to. So at this time, the author Paul in 68, is writing this letter to Philemon, as a matter of fact, and he's writing a second letter to the church in Colossae. And Philemon was a church leader in Colossae, uh, an elder uh, type of leader uh, at the church of Colossae. And not only was Philemon a church leader in Colossae, but he was wealthy. He was a wealthy man. And how do we know that Philemon was wealthy? Well, the biggest clue is that, uh, in which this book is all about, is that Philemon had slaves. And that was quite normal during this time. It wasn't out of the ordinary. It wasn't considered evil doing. It wasn't against the law. Uh, 
many people that were wealthy had, had huge land, had big families that lived there, and they needed help, and so they would hire slaves. And so Philemon, uh, being a church leader and wealthy, very well off, big property, lots of things to take care of, had slaves, not just one, but multiple slaves, and one slave was named Onesimus, our third character in the Bible, or in Philemon. And we don't exactly know what happened, but there was something, uh, there was a conflict between Philemon, the slave owner, and the slave Onesimus, where there was conflict. Philemon, this letter doesn't share with what it is, but for whatever reason, Onesimus felt like he had to run away. And so he ran away from his, from his slave owner, uh, from Colossae, uh, modern-day modern day Turkey, to Rome. Now, how did he get from Turkey to Rome? We, we don't exactly know. It doesn't, it doesn't go into the details. But when Onesimus moved and ran away from Colossae to Rome, he visited Paul or ran in contact with Paul while Paul was in house arrest in Rome. And, and they got to know each other. They established a relationship. They developed a bond. And so this letter to Philemon is, is Paul saying, okay, uh, Philemon, I'm going to send Onesimus, your slave, back to you. Now, not only do I want you to receive him with love and tenderness and care, I want you to view him no longer as a slave. No longer as a slave, but as a brother. And our text, again, comes from Philippians chapter 1, verse 10. says, I'm appealing to you for... Uh, I'm appealing to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. And he's saying this to Philemon. For merely he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him, that is, my own heart, back to you. I wanted to keep him with me so that he might be of service to me uh, in your place during my imprisonment, for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent, in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. So Paul is saying, I'm sending back Onesimus to you so you can receive him. I, I'm not going to force you to do that. I want to give you the option to receive him back and to love him. But I plead to you, if you read between the lines, I want you to do this but I want this to be out of your own volition. It says, I indeed might be voluntary and not something forced. Verse 15 says, perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever. And verse 16 says, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. See, Paul's asking uh, Philemon to do something that is audacious, something that's out of the ordinary, that is so countercultural. He says, Will you take back your slave, this person that you own, who actually ran away from you for whatever conflict? That's a whole different story. You had a conflict and yet he ran away. Now I want him to I want him to come back. And I want you to receive him not as a slave, as a brother. Now, what you don't know is that the, uh, the offense, the punishment for running away from your slave during this time was a capital offense. Onesimus should have been put to death for running away from his, uh, his master. 
And yet Paul is asking both of them to do very audacious things. He's saying first, uh, Philemon, take back your slave, even though he ran away from you. And he's asking Onesimus, hey, trust me, I want you to go back without knowing the end result. Like Onesimus could be, should be put to death for his punishment. And and we don't know what Philemon's response is quite yet. And as a matter of fact, the, the letter ends, we still don't know what Philemon actually did. But Paul's saying, Onesimus, I want you to take a chance. I know that you can be put to death, but I want you to go back and make things right. And what Paul is arguing for and is reflecting the heart of Christ in the entire gospel is this idea of forgiveness and reconciliation. Where there's two worlds that are so far apart, where the world says they should hate each other, where the world says that he should be put to death, he is higher, he is superior, he is inferior. Paul is saying, I want you to come together, be reconciled as equal people in the gospel of Jesus. No longer will you be a slave. No longer are you superior. No longer are you inferior. You are now brothers. Receive him back. That's the message, the powerful message, subversive message that Paul has for both Onesimus and Philemon. It's a radical sense of forgiveness, first of all, and it's a radical sense of uh, of reconciliation. They had every reason to hate one another. The world tells them that they should hate one another to the point of death, and yet Paul is saying the gospel of Jesus is so much bigger than that. Be reconciled and love one another. But see, reconciliation isn't easy, and we know that, Uh, whether it's racial reconciliation, socioeconomic reconciliation, gender reconciliation, sexuality, whatever. We know that reconciliation takes work because it's so much easier to step back and be living in our own comfort zone where we're all, the people that we look like, the people that speak the same language, the people that think like us and act like us, that is so much easier than to say, well, wait a minute, God wants us to be reconciled to all people. See, reconciliation requires sacrificial love. It requires giving of ourselves. It takes work. And Paul is, is, is going beyond this idea of tolerance. Paul isn't saying, go back and just tolerate one another. No, tolerance is easy. That's the easy way out. Relationship, that takes courage. And that takes work. And that's exactly what reconciliation looks like. And so what we're going to talk about is reconciliation quickly is going to require uh, at least three of these things. And first, reconciliation requires viewing one another as equals. Simple, right? Reconciliation requires viewing one another as equals. Yet, though simple and so does, so obvious to us, in this year, in 60 AD, in the first century, this was a very provocative idea. And yet, actually, if we're being honest with ourselves, this is kind of provocative even today. In verse 16, and sometimes I'll read again, it says, No longer as a slave, but as a brother, as a beloved brother, especially to me. And then verse 17 says, So if you consider me, Paul's saying, Philemon, if you consider me your partner, 
Well, welcome Onesimus as you would welcome me. See, this word partner in the original context, in the original language, is this word koinonia. And we, some of us may have heard this Greek word koinonia. Koinonia means, it's translated as community or, or fellowship. And the word koinonia was actually also used in the first century as partners, as equal laborers. Like, you can think of it as partners in a company. Uh, they had 50-50 share. Uh, koinonia represented an, an equality between two people and, and what Paul is saying to Philemon, if you consider me your equal, which the obvious is, that's kind of rhetorical. The answer is yes, Philemon does. As a matter of fact, if anything, Philemon sees Paul as someone higher because Paul was his teacher. And Paul was the one who brought uh, Philemon to Jesus to know the way of Christ. And, and so with that said, Paul is saying, if you consider me koinonia as equal, I want you to receive Onesimus also as a partner, as equal. I mean, that's, that's asking for a lot for Philemon. He is saying that, yes, you were this, his superior at one point. You were his master. And now I want you to see him as your equal. Can you imagine how Philemon would feel? How much humility that requires? How much sacrifice that takes for Philemon? Koinonia, he is your partner. And this has been a constant message of Paul all throughout the Jews and all throughout the Gentiles. Uh, and as he was writing to Philemon, again, he was writing to the to where Philemon was living in Colossae, where we get the letter of Colossians. And in Colossians chapter 3, Paul says this. He says, But now you must also rid yourself of such things as anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self and its old practices. And in verse 10 it says, And have put on a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. And here's what Paul says in verse 11. Listen closely. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is, Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another as you have grievances among someone. When you have grievances among someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And the question we have to ask ourselves as we see what's happening around our country, especially in Virginia, at the root of all these things is the question, do we view others as equal as ourselves? Do we view others in this beautiful image, beautiful image created by the creator God? Do we see people, all people in that way? And if I'm being honest with myself, I would say the answer for me is no. And if we're being honest with ourselves, maybe for some of us, the answer is no as well. The other day, I was walking down the street. I was walking downtown, uh, and there was a homeless man. 
who had a sign who says, I'm homeless, you know, and just needed something. And I was walking right past him. And he said, sir, do you have any spare change, any money that you can spare? And at the time, I was really hungry. I was trying to get to point A to point B really fast. And I walked right past him, and I said, I'm sorry, I have no cash on me, which was true. And it barely made eye contact, and I continued walking. And I thought about that that evening. And I thought to myself about my behavior. I was reflecting on that. And I said to myself, In what relationships in my life, whether it's friendships, whether it's uh, coworkers, whether it's even strangers, whether it's people I don't know, in what world, in what reality is that behavior acceptable? And I would say nowhere. Nowhere is that acceptable. Where I just remove complete dignity out of this person, where I don't even acknowledge the personhood of this individual, where I don't even take the chance to stop, even if I didn't have any cash, which I didn't, to stop and look him in the eye and say, sorry, I do not have cash. Or or I should have taken him out to lunch. There's a million things I could have done. Yet, I walked right past him, not even making eye contact, not even giving him the dignity that he deserved. Where in our lives and who are the people in our lives we need, we need to challenge ourselves? Do I not see equality with this person? Do I see myself even above this person? Because until we find ourselves viewing everybody on the same playing field, just equal ground, uh, in love, knowing that we were all created equally in the image of Christ, reconciliation will be impossible. Because reconciliation begins and requires us to view everybody, everybody, no matter what race, no matter what culture, no matter what language, no matter what gender, no matter what sexuality, no matter where they came from, no matter what what experience, reconciliation that Christ calls us to always includes us viewing each other as equals. Like Paul says, like as a beloved brother or beloved sister. This is what we struggle with. And this is a challenge that we have, not only just myself, but as a community, but as, this, as a country. And this is a message for us as Christians to live out, to pursue, to, to push, to encourage, and to, fight, and to invite others into that same story. So not only do we need to view others as equals, but secondly, we have to view others as teachers. We have to know and believe and understand that we can and should and need to be able to learn from others, from everybody. We have to understand that somebody, everybody around us has something to offer us, that we can benefit from being in relationship and from knowing people even outside of our own comfort zone. See, in verse 11, uh, it says this, it says, for merely he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful both to you and for me. See, what we 
don't know what has been said here is that Onesimus comes from a, a place called Phygia. Uh, it's in Colossae, actually. And so he was a Phygian slave. And, and the reputation of slaves that come from Phygia is that they're useless, that they were incompetent, that they didn't do a good job at their work. That was a reputation that uh, Onesimus had as a Phygian slave. He was useless. He had nothing to offer. And so maybe that was why he ran away. I, I don't know. The interesting thing is that the word Onesimus means useful. In the original language, Onesimus means useful. And so when Paul was writing here, it was no accident. He was using the word play to prove a point. He was saying, again, now that we know the context, for merely he was useless. You thought he was useless. But now, indeed, he is useful. Onesimus has something to offer you, Philemon. Hey, and if I could even take it further, uh, Paul is saying, Philemon, you, you need Onesimus, and Onesimus needs you. There's something about you, too, where you guys can learn from one another, grow with one another. And, and I would say that's us as well. We, we forget to understand that though people are so different from us, people that we, are, we walk past every single day, people at our workplace, at our schools, uh, at our friendships or clubs or whatever it is, yet we fail to recognize, well, wait a minute, we can actually learn something. I can benefit, I can be a better human being from being in relationship with this person. Because oftentimes we are guilty of something, and myself included. We only want to hang out with people that look like us, that think like us, that believe in the same thing as us, that have the same political affiliation as us, that has the same religious affiliation as us. And I would say this, I would go so far as to say, if you want to grow, if you want to transform, it is necessary, a prerequisite to go outside of that comfort zone. And I would say you would grow more as a human being having people surrounding you that don't think and look and believe the same things you do. Uh, I would say if you only put yourself in this comfort zone of people just like you, this homogenous comfort zone, you're actually at a deficit. Because the word of Paul to Philemon is true for us today. Paul saying to Philemon, hey, I know you don't feel like you can learn from Onesimus. I know that you think Onesimus is useless, but I promise you, Philemon, he is useful. He is useful to me is what Paul is saying. Out of all the people, Paul, who had every right to say, hey, these are my children. They learn from me. Paul has the bravery and the courage to say, hey, look. If Onesimus, if I can learn from Onesimus, if I can benefit in, in a relational way from, from being in a relationship with Onesimus, Philemon, so can you. What about us? Do we even take the chance, the time, to associate ourselves with people with, political, with different political affiliations, from different cultures, from different languages, from different religions, because if we don't, I would say that we're missing out. That doesn't mean that we get pushed and swayed of our own convictions and our own beliefs. Uh, my hope uh, and desire is that we're strong in that, that we have developing that, and that we have developed that and we're developing that. Yet, we can still learn and to be in relationship with those that are even different from us.
Who can you learn from? Who can you be curious about? With no agenda but to be a friend, but to love and to know. We have things to grow and to learn from others, even people that are different from us. So the arts, the act of reconciliation requires three things. First, is to understand and believe that we're all equal. And two, not only are we equal, but we can learn from one another. And three, by acting on behalf of. By acting on, the be- on the behalf of. Verse 17 says this, so if you consider me your partner, welcome him. Uh, if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. <clears throat> I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. I say nothing about your... I say nothing about your owing me, even your own self. So Paul is saying, hey, look, Philemon, I'm sending Onesimus back to you. If he's wronged you in any way, I'm going to step in. And I will pay for all the things that he's done, uh, for the ways he's wronged you. If he owes you anything, I will pay for it. I will intervene. I'll step in. I will do that. You won't have to pay me back. You won't have to pay me. No one will have to pay me back. I'm going to come in. And I'm going to act on behalf of Onesimus. See, here's the thing. Here's where the rubber meets the road. Yes, we can say all the right things. We can post all the right things. We can like all the right things. But when the rubber meets the road, there is no such thing as neutrality. When it comes to justice, there is no such thing as neutrality. We have to take a stand. And not only do we have to take a stand, we have to move, we have to act on behalf of those that are marginalized, that are oppressed, that are pushed to the side. See, I love what Desmond Tutu, an Anglican bishop, a leader against the South African apartheid, he says this, he says, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. And many of us have heard the words of, or read the words of Martin Luther King Jr. He says, in the end, we will not remember the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Let me read that, that again, because that's powerful. I know we, a lot of us have heard that before, but that is so powerful, and I hope that's convicting. It says, in the end, we will not remember the words of our enemies, the people that have, that have wronged us. I'm not, I'm not going to remember that. What I'm going to remember, he says, is the silence of our friends. Last year, uh, as a staff, not just Bethany West Seattle, but all of Bethany, uh, we gathered together in this emergency meeting. It was right after this, this video was leaked, after then um, presidential candidate, uh, there was a video of him saying that he uh, would inappropriately touch and grab women and, and of that nature, I think we all know what I'm talking about. We, we met up after that to debrief, okay, as a church, how do, we re, how do we respond to that? How do we respond to the hurt and the pain and the betrayal that many, especially women in our congregation and in our staff felt? And so for about 10 to 15 minutes, uh, majority of the, well, all of the women in, on our staff would raise their hand and, and kind of talk about how, how hurt and how betrayed they felt. For good reason, obviously. And, and then all of a sudden, I hear my cell phone, uh, I felt my cell phone buzz, and I get this text uh, from a colleague uh, who was sitting like 20 feet in front of me at the time. 
in, in that text. I'll never forget it. She says, does this not bother you? And I responded, of course this bothers me. This bothers me a ton. And she said, then why aren't you saying anything? And I remember how convicted I felt because I remember thinking, well, I'm not saying anything because I don't care. I'm not saying anything because I feel like I don't have the right to say anything. I feel like I shouldn't say anything. But the lesson that I learned that day, the lesson that we're learning here through the book of Philemon is that if it bothers you, if there's something stirring in your heart, if there's some way that God is convicting you, you must do something. You must say something. You must act on behalf of those that are being oppressed, marginalized, pushed to the side. We must be a voice. And I would confess that the church, we need to be better at this. We love staying comfortable. We love not, uh, not causing a storm. We love people loving us, and we don't want to say anything that will disturb anything. Uh, and at the expense of that is, A, being disobedient for God, calling for us to pursue justice, but at the expense of people being, again, marginalized and oppressed and pushed aside. I would say to a certain degree, we can work. It's easy for us to work on viewing everyone as equal. There's no disagreement on that, especially if you're a follower of Jesus. Uh, And next, seeing everyone as a teacher. Yes, that might take work. That might uh, cause us or compel us to do things that we don't normally do. Ask questions. Hang out with people that we don't hang out with. Ask people for coffee for for people that we don't know. But number three, this one is difficult. This one's a challenge to act on behalf of. Who are the people you need to act on behalf of? Do you, do you see them? Are they around you? I bet they are. And I bet they need someone to stand up for them. Before we go into this corporate time of prayer, I'll just share this story. Uh, again, our church has taken uh, reconciliation, especially racial reconciliation, very seriously. Uh, and a few months ago, we went to SPU, uh, South Pacific University, for this conference on racial reconciliation in the church. Uh, and, and, uh, and it was an incredible conference. We learned a lot. And at the end of it, uh, I remember a colleague coming up to me and says, Prince, I, I don't even know what to say. It's very similar to my situation at that staff meeting. She says, I, I don't know what to say. She says, as a white individual, I feel like I don't have a voice. I feel like I shouldn't say anything at all. And my response to her was, as a matter of fact, that's the very reason you should say something. We need people to stand up. We need people, especially at that time, in that context, especially coming from me, I would say, as a person of color, myself, and representing the community of people of color, I would say, as a white person, I want you to stand up and say something against injustice. Do not be silent about this. You have the right. Not only the right, but permission and an encouragement from Scripture from God to say, move and act on behalf of those that I love. But we must move with hope. We must move with hope. See, hope is the enemy of justice. 
Hope is the enemy of justice, and it requires courage. It's the courage to believe that things can be different. It's the courage to believe that things will be different. Because we say yes to God's calling in our life for reconciliation, to view others as equals, to understand that we can learn and grow from being in a relationship with others, and to say yes by acting and loving and moving and standing up for others. Man, I was so proud of not only our church, but the church universal over the past weekend, condemning what happened in Virginia, calling a spade a spade evil. White supremacists, terrorists, domestic terrorists, like they said it. And it's okay, it's good for us to name, name it. If we don't name it, we can't wrestle with it. And Christ calls us to name it, name sin, repent, and be the catalyst for change. Maybe not all of us are gonna fly over there, not everyone here is gonna be activists, but even in our own context, what can we do? It starts with you, it starts with me. And it starts with viewing as everyone as equal in the beautiful image that God created them. I want that for us. I want that for me. And so we're going to do something a little bit different uh, this morning. And it's going to be uncomfortable. I'm going to cause us to be uh, uncomfortable and put us out in, outside of our comfort zone. I want us to gather maybe three or four people around you. And we'll put on a little bit of music, but I want, I want us to pray together, collectively. Now, if you're new to, us, if you're new to Bethany, if this is weird, um, sorry, this is what we do. We pray for one another. We pray for uh, times and, and places that need, need the power of prayer. We believe in it, and we invite you to participate. Now, not everyone, you don't have to. We're not going to pressure anyone to pray out loud. I know some people are uncomfortable with that, but hey, I would challenge you to do it anyways. Or you can say pass. It's okay. But I want us to break up into groups of like four-ish around you and pray. Pray collectively for our country, for our nation specifically for the community in, in Virginia. Pray for our, our, our leaders of our country, that they would do the right thing, that they would pursue all the right things. And, and also, thirdly, pray for us, our own selves, our own community. What can we do? What's our part? Convict us. Can we do that just for a few minutes? And then we'll convene, we'll sing a song together, and, and we'll be dismissed after that. So let's pray together.